0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me
1: voices. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Eric Anderson, the director of the Voices in Leadership series that focuses on the nexus of leadership and science to create positive change in public health. This series is not only focused on issues facing public health, but those impacting the broader medical community. And for that reason, I'm honored to introduce our special guest. Dr. Tom Mahalovich is the president and CEO of Cleveland Clinic, leading an $8 billion healthcare system that includes a main campus in Cleveland, Ohio, 10 regional hospitals, 18 family health centers, and facilities in Florida, Nevada, Toronto, Abu Dhabi, and London. He previously served as CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. And from 2010 to 2015, Dr. Mahalovic was chief of staff and chairman of the Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. A native of Croatia and a naturalized American citizen, Dr. Mahalovic earned his degree from the University of Zagreb before moving to the United States in 1995 to take a position at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. He moved to Cleveland Clinic in 2004 as a cardiothoracic surgeon specializing in minimally invasive, robotically assisted cardiac surgeries. Indeed, he helped to build Cleveland Clinic into the world's largest robotic practice. Today, we look forward to hearing about Dr. Mahalovich's insights on leadership and taking on challenging assignments. Before I turn this discussion over to our moderator, Dr. Atul Gawande, please join me as we welcome Dr. Tom Mahalovich to the Voices in Leadership series here at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm delighted to get to talk to you, Tom. And, and just call, talking to you, calling you Tom alone, we used to call you Tommy when you were at the Brigham. Um, you had this extraordinary journey from physician in Croatia to refugee of war to CEO of Cleveland Clinic. And I partly want to try to capture that. What, what, tell us about your life growing up in Croatia, becoming a physician, becoming a surgeon, and then war happened. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I come from uh, Zagreb, Croatia, and I grew up with, uh, uh, with my uh, immediate family. I have one sister. Uh, my mom is still alive, my sister lives in, uh, in Croatia. My dad, unfortunately, passed away 20 years ago when I was an intern here at the Brigham, right around that time. And we had a very cohesive family, uh, uh, tightly knit. Uh, we grew up in a very relatively moderate circumstances. Uh, one-bedroom apartment for four of us, and additional family members coming in and out. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. And growing up in Croatia was uh, uh, really just a nice experience and a great memory for me. I went through med school. Uh, and right as we graduated from the from the med school, a uh, year or two uh, afterwards, the war started. You know, this is something that was unthinkable for us. Uh, in Europe, at the time, we never thought it would be, be a like a war, war breaking out in Boston. Yeah, it, is just, it was just an impossibility even to conceive in t- uh, uh, to to have any type of idea that that something like bad like that could happen after the Second World War, but it did. Uh, consequently, uh, right after the med school, all residency programs were shut down, so there was no opportunity for further education. So I had to uh, look for the opportunities elsewhere. Now. For the younger people in the audience, this is a pre internet era, is that right? <laughs> and there was definitely no internet in Croatia, I can tell you that. So, you know, how, what, what do you do? What do you do? And I, I just coincidentally uh, ran into a, uh, a very established cardiac surgeon, Professor Torina, who's of Croatian heritage but ran a cardiac surgical unit in Zurich, and he offered me a job in Zurich. Uh, And it was a funny conversation, because the conversation took place on a parking lot in Zagreb. So he looked at me and said, well, uh, do you speak German? I said, no. So they said, how much time do you think you need in order to learn the language? So what's the safe answer? Is that right? You don't really know a (laughs) foreign language in order to practice medicine. So I said, well, about a year, I think. Uh, And he said, well, if you cannot master it in three months, there is nothing to talk about. I said okay good so I quit all of my jobs that I was volunteering for in Croatia picked up my bag no bags bag uh, and went over to my cousin's in Vienna learned German in 3 months and then moved to Switzerland so <laughs> that was the first the first thing only to find out that the language they speak in Zurich was a different kind of a German than the
0: one that I learned in <laughs> Austria
2: <laughs> so
0: so you became a fully trained cardiac surgeon in in uh, in Zurich.
2: Oh, well, I spent four years in Zurich, which was wonderful. Fully trained is would be an exaggeration, but I, I would, And I spent four years in cardiac surgery. I couldn't get into a categorical residency program just because these opportunities were not offered for people who were not uh, native uh, Swiss. So I had to look for the opportunities opportunities elsewhere. So I came to my mentor, Dr. Torina, and said I would like to go to the United States. And uh, then he called a person who then I got really associated with very, very closely over a long period of time, uh, my dear friend, mentor, Dr. Larry Cohn, who uh, chaired uh, cardiac surgery here at the Brigham, here in Boston. uh, And he offered me my first job. It was, uh, as, as you probably recall from our residency days, Atul and I were residents together, it was uh, uns- so a one-year res- uh, uh, fellowship program at the Brigham. That's how it all started here. I came here in 1995.
0: Well, a year after that. So this is, you've got to understand, this is a guy who is fully trained, relative to me, uh, as a surgeon and cardiac surgeon had come in and lands on my service <laughs> as my intern. <laughs> And so, you know, there'd be a gunshot wound downstairs, and the cardiac folks would call up and say, "Hey, can Tommy come help us out?" Yes, you can take my intern. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd have to deal with all of the, you know, the nausea and vomiting, and then <laughs> everything else on the floor would all become like I'm supposed to be the I'm supposed to be the chief resident here. <laughs> so this is supposed to be my job. And but Tom, Tommy, you came on and. You kind of had to start all over again. You were starting at the bottom, and you had to work your way all the way through the top. And I never once felt that from you. You know, you—it was very clear. You knew more than I did about surgery. You knew you knew how to run a team better than I did, and I never once felt that you resented it.
2: Because I didn't. Why? I just give you because the uniqueness of. Of, of the opportunity that I, that was handed over here to me uh, at a Brigham, just by being just but to be at Harvard was was, was unthinkable for me. It's something that uh, you know I felt so blessed uh, that I have uh, just a chance to be here and learn from people around me that I never felt felt embarrassed or. Um, I uh, never felt any resentment to the contrary. I just uh, felt an immense uh, amount of uh, gratitude to be able to, to be trained here. You know, when I came, you have to understand, I worked, I worked as a nursing assistant at a medical school while I was going through the medical school in Croatia in order to be able to support myself. Uh, that was a really well-paid job because I had to work for six or seven months in order to collect enough money to buy my first and only foreign book, which was The Harrison's Principle of Internal Medicine by Eugene Braunwald. Seven months of work. And then I came here, and that person who I, I thought it doesn't exist in the real world, it was like well, some fiction, he, he was actually here at the Brigham. There was nothing to complain about, not, <laughs> not where I came from. So that's the reason why I never sent a resentment. Plus, people were so nice. I mean, people in audience today, you know, back where I was from, you know, you wouldn't get a treatment that we get at a Brigham. You know, I'm a kind of a tall guy. I'm six four, and I would be an intern getting into the operating room. All these senior surgeons would step up on the stools. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Because they'd lift
2: the table. We lift the table, the table so, the so that I couldn't, feel, I couldn't feel comfortable operating, unthinkable, anyplace else. Uh, and just a degree of graciousness and uh, generosity. Why would I ever complain about that?
0: Well, you it was, I think, almost 10 years before you made it back to where you were in Zurich. 13. years to where <laughs> you were in your training in Zurich. I got
2: my first job at the age of 38. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that was a long pathway. But you came out the other end, out of your cardi- you know, out of the full surgical training at the Brigham, research time, then the cardiac training. And you started out, and then immediately uh, as an innovator, and it was really as a surgical innovator doing um, really interesting technological things and also technique. Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about, uh, you you started at the Brigham, why you moved to Cleveland Clinic, and and you and I talked about this. You talked about the really different environment and why that was going to be a better fit for you than, yeah. than where we are.
2: So I stayed at the Brigham for two years after I completed cardiac surgical residency, although they were really eager to recruit me over there for training in cardiac surgery and then for a job. But I always thought that I, uh, I owed a lot to people who are so kind to me uh, here at the Brigham that I, I thought that uh, uh, that was the right thing the decision for me to stay, to stay at the Brigham. But it's a, with the passage of time, I mean, in, 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 my, in, in our world, uh, Cleveland Clinic uh, for Cardiac Surgeons is the best place to practice. And I thought that I, uh, I learned a lot while being here. But I really wanted to see what is my absolute weight in the world of cardiac surgery by embracing the opportunity to work with the best team in cardiac surgery that there is. So I went over there. For that reason, but also the culture of the organization is very, very unique. Uh, and it was just a good fit for me personally.
0: Explain some of that difference though, because we talked about that, right? There's the there's the team environment and yes. what and, and what that how different that is. You know, we think of ourselves as a team environment yeah. and, and you'd be like, you're full of crap at <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it is you know it is it is uh, there's so to say a great degree of selflessness uh, that comes from the top. Uh, people are really about each other and about the organization. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. It's very very horizontal. Uh, we do not have any titles at the Cleveland Clinic. So if you walk down our hallways, you're going to see maybe uh, my name at the door, but nobody would know if I'm a professor or where's my relative status. We would like to say that we like people to be recognized by their name and their ability rather than a relative position in, a for in the organization. And it truly resonates across the organization very, very well. And then uh, uh, there is this kind of uh, the collective sense of uh, the fact that we, together, are much more important than each individual for him or herself. Uh, And ultimately, our careers are going to advance faster, and we're going to create a better impact for our patients and for our communities, for our organization if we work together than if we just work side by side.
0: I I was struck by a couple things you told me around that time. Uh, For example, even the chairs all have to go through a review every five years, and it is not assumed that you will stay chair. Yeah. That that in fact very few are ever chair uh, more than twice.
2: Correct, correct. So yeah, so first of all, we all are on a one-year contracts, so we do not have tenure. We each one of us goes through annual professional review every single year. Uh, I've signed. This is my 15th contract that I hope I'm going to sign uh, <laughs> uh, coming up. Even as a CEO, I don't have a long-term contract. Uh, and uh, uh leaders of different parts of the organization have five-year uh, reviews in a history of the clinic that is about to turn uh, 100 years old in, in three years There have been only three individuals who have uh, so to say survived three five years reviews meaning they stayed in a leadership position for longer than 15 years and those were and those were the, uh, uh, Fred loop uh, Toby Toby Cosgrove and our, and our past uh, um, the Chair of Eurologic Institute.
0: Amazing. Well, you titled this um, uh, discussion "Take the, the" and as a kind of form of advice, take the jobs that no one else wants to do. Yeah. And you've kind of done that along the way. Can you tell us what you meant by that?
2: Well, you know, oftentimes people ask me, "So, how do you get along in the organization? How do you build your careers?" Is that right? So. I have kind of done it because I, I was willing to take on the assignments that are immediately available, but nobody else wanted to do. And uh, there are very many opportunities in every organization, and it doesn't matter in healthcare alone, but uh, everywhere. Uh, there are jobs that are really important, but they're just either in early stages or they do not have associated resources or recognition, so nobody takes them on. So let's just take, for example, robotic surgery. Now it looks very prominent, is that right? Robotic cardiac surgery looks very, very fashionable. Uh, 11, 12 years ago, that was a job that nobody wanted. It was in early stages. It was difficult to do. It was risky. I mean, I could not find uh, people to scrub with me. So I jokingly always say that my team, early team, composed of all the people that they were carefully selected by my senior colleagues, (laughs) because those are the people that my senior colleagues did not want to work with. (laughs) <laughs> so they all came on my team, <laughs> and we made it, we made a difference as a team, and that taught me that you can you you can be uh, you can. Create a world-class team out of uh, out of almost anyone, as long as their hearts and minds are in it. So I embraced that. And
0: Abu Dhabi was the job no one wanted to take. Oh yeah,
2: oh yes. I was joking. (laughs) Explain this this one
0: when when Toby Toby came to you saying, "How about this?"
2: Yeah. So I came to Toby, and I was 47 years of age at the time, and I checked off all the academic boxes or most of the academic boxes that you would, and professional. And I came to the realization that, and it was a difficult one. I, I have to admit to that. What I thought is going to be a fully gratifying career of uh, academic cardiac surgery was probably not the one that I was so enthusiastic about as I thought I would be. And it was really difficult because I worked my entire life to get to that point. And uh, uh, it took me several years to come to Toby and say, Toby, I do not know what I want to do, but I'm pretty certain about what I do not want to do. So we had a conversation and Toby came and said, well, you know, there is an opportunity for you to make an impact and go to Abu Dhabi. So I was 47 years of age. I was at the peak of my surgical career. I had one of the largest cardiac surgical practices in the United States. And I dropped all of that and went to to Abu Dhabi. I have no Middle Eastern it's hospital that did not exist. Hospital did not exist. You don't even know how to do that. No, I had no formal training in doing it. Uh, uh, we were two years behind schedule on a, on, a, on a building. We had a team of 30 people. And we were 7,000
0: miles away of Cleveland. Uh, and what you told Cleveland. me was, the only thing, rule I have is that I have to deliver the same quality of Cleveland Clinic care in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that was the that And, was, and that haven't was the, launched in like three years or something.
2: Yeah, so Toby asked me, uh, so would you take the job? And I, uh, I said, yes, but it was the only, the, I said I had only one condition. I said, I'll take the job because I saw the potential. Uh, uh, but only under one condition. So it has to be the right, the real Cleveland Clinic. Oh, so that was your condition? That was my condition. I said, there was, I'm not going to just put the plaque on the, uh, on the building and call it the Cleveland Clinic. It has to have Cleveland Clinic people, culture, processes, the quality of care. It has to be the real thing. Uh, because I think that that's, that's just ethically the right thing to do, and that is something that we, uh, we have, quite frankly, an obligation and opportunity to do more so.
0: So to create that, which was a huge accomplishment, yeah. right? Um, what do you think were the one or two key things that you did? I've heard the stories about the difficulty of the motivation of the workforce, yeah. the difficulty of you know, attention to detail, getting things right. What were the one or two or three most important things you did to accomplish that?
2: So let me just probably start first by describing the scale of the, of the effort. So, Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi is the largest international healthcare project worldwide. So, we're speaking about your, the building has four million square feet. Uh, it uh, has more volume inside the building than the tallest building in the world, which is Burj Khalifa in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Seven thousand five hundred spaces or rooms inside it. You know, three and a half thousand parking spots, and so on and so on. So, there's all, It's really the largest steel construction in an entire Gulf, Arabian Gulf. And uh, my, my job and our job as a small team, we had only 35 people there in 2000 and, uh, 2011 when I went over there, is to uh, have to find 5,500 people that we had to bring there uh, from 80 different countries, uh, put them into a new country together with their families, form them as the teams, put them in a 4 million square foot facility that is completely digitally integrated with about 4,000 kilometers of fiber optic cable, make them work as the teams, and deliver Cleveland Clinic quality care in more than 50 different service lines right out of the gates. So this is job description. (laughs) And we started with uh, only two physicians, three nurses in 2011. Um, and we started with a small office space downtown Abu Dhabi. I've never been to UAE before. Before my first first trip, and now five years later, uh, or now it's seven years later. I'm sorry. This hospital is fully functioning hospital in more than fifty service lines. We're actually building a new addition for cancer care, and we have completely transformed the the, uh, the healthcare in that part of the world. So how do you do that? Uh, probably the first and most important thing are people. My job was to recruit uh, the, best, the best possible talent. Uh, we managed to recruit leaders uh, in every service line or every institute that came from the United States, 80% of them from Cleveland Clinic. So people who knew what the end product needs to look like. You had to instill the right culture right out of the gates. That's very, very important. And how do you, the, do, you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> culture can be taught. Uh, uh, we spent an immense amount of time uh, actually teaching people what it actually means to be a Cleveland Clinic caregiver. Uh, there was an onboarding period was eight weeks long. Two weeks were spent on a culture, and a culture that was taught not individually but as a team. So you would have the onboarding team of nurses, physicians, uh, accountants all in the same room, speaking about how do we talk to each other, how do we solve problems, what do we stand for as an organization, how do we deal with difficult situations, what gets you on the bus, what gets you off the bus. Uh, that is something. And then you keep on refreshing it, and you keep keep on modeling it with your, with your own behavior, and, and it sticks. It was really impressive, actually, probably the most inspirational part of all of this was not the technical and medical but it was really interesting to see how those values that we hold so dear in, and think unique or that are unique for Cleveland Cleveland Clinic Ohio are transcend the geographical cultural ethnic and religious boundaries
0: hmm. well um, and now you come back home <laughs> yes. you know what one of my rules is you never want to take the job of someone who's highly successful. Yeah. <laughs> you always want, like I always said, like I don't want to do plastic surgery because I, I'm supposed to make people more beautiful, and you already know one or two percent of the time you're going to have something terrible go wrong. Like that's a that, I want to go into a code where everyone thinks the person's going to die anyway, yeah. and if you save the day, it's a miracle, right? So now you step into plastic surgery, like yeah. you know. You got to make this place even more beautiful that's been going this well. Toby Cosgrove has been an icon. Correct. How do you, it's year one, how are you approaching stepping in as the leader? It's been a year now. So. Yeah,
2: yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, less I'm, any I'm, yeah, less than a year. I've been in a job for five months, so when people, uh, invite me to speak, I always start with a disclaimer. I said I haven't really done anything yet. You know, I just got the job. So I cannot really tell you any secrets of success because it's impossible to say whether I'll be successful or not. But I would like to just reflect a little bit on Toby Cosgrove, who's my predecessor. Toby has been a dear mentor, dear friend. And he's been just very, very gracious uh, in a transition. Uh, he continues to work at the Cleveland Clinic as an advisor uh, to me. Uh, but we have just a wonderful relationship. And uh, uh, the organization is in phenomenal, uh, as you said, in phenomenal shape. But everybody in the organization understands that uh, my job, or the job of anyone in my place, is not to keep it the way it is. Uh, everybody uh, at the clinic, once you get your job, the first question is, OK, what are we going to do differently? That's the organizational expectation. Uh, because they know every we know that we have to continue to evolve uh, to make the organization stronger and better, and to take better care of our patients, our resources, to take better care of each other. That's a never-ending journey. Nobody has any any expectation that we're going to continue to be successful if we stay the way we are. To the contrary.
0: Well, so here's the puzzle about n- not staying the way you are that I think a lot about in your situation, Cleveland Clinic, is. A phenomenal specialty care factory. My father went there with his brain tumor. I grew up in Ohio. My mother went there for a uh, for hip surgery. Um, You know, they travel four hours to get there. Um, But the future is about health and not just coming in at the rescue point, right? And and that means really being part of integrated primary care um, and really having a lifelong relationship with people. As you get older, you accumulate your chronic illnesses. We'll rescue you with that great specialty care, but then it's then it's what happens afterward that yeah. turns out to be the big deal. And and you know visiting there, that part is not what Cleveland Clinic has done great, right? Um, but you are trying to figure out how to combine a vision of a population health um, strategy, being ahead of illness rather than than uh, yeah. being great after illness. What, what are the building blocks for a, for a place like that, that that wasn't outfitted for it?
2: Well, uh, I've just offered maybe a slightly different take on it. You know, sometimes people think that a population health and a specialty care are two different businesses, and some people would advocate that you need to like, physically separate them and organize them differently. I, I, we do not happen to share that opinion. You know, 80% of patients who we have at a Cleveland clinic are people who we know. So they establish patients. 80% of conditions that we treat are chronic conditions. The degree of interventions along the course of a treatment of chronic condition varies, obviously, based on a complexity. And we believe that our responsibility is to provide a continuum of care. And uh, I believe that it's, it has to be done in a different places with probably different complement of caregivers. But we as an organization are responsible for continuum of care. And uh, because you know people do not come to your organization uh, with the label, I need specialty care, or I need primary care. Is that right? And that label changes also for every individual along the course of time. So uh, we are now uh, integrating our primary health care network and adding it really on a very existing specialty care network, uh, understanding that very many people who are labeled as specialties, essentially in the treatment of chronic conditions, take a look at pulmonary Rheumatology. I mean, rheumatologists. A 90% of their practice are people who they've known, you they know, for decades, oftentimes. So, uh, w- what I'm trying to say is that we're working into creating a different model of care that is going to satisfy the needs of our patients, regardless of the stage of the chronic illness that they're that they're in. And we believe that that next iteration of the uh, organization of our healthcare model is going to be primarily focused around teams lesser than individual providers.
0: Well, you've done an incredible thing that I've seen in my hometown in Athens, Ohio. We're, we're far away from you, almost four hours. The poorest county in Ohio 20 years ago, or a little over that, an osteopathic school of medicine sure. got built. Um, and you all have hired 50 primary care doctors out of there yeah. into the Cleveland Clinic, which we is hired them incredible. All. Whoever
2: graduates, we hired them.
0: You, exactly. Their, your policy yeah. is like every graduate gets, yeah. gets a job. It's incredible. Yes. It's that incredible.
2: Is we have a great, great. Uh, Collaboration with, and we're integrating. You know, we're building this new health education campus, uh, uh, where for the first time we're going to put under the same roof uh, medical students, nursing students, dental students under the same roof because we firmly believe that uh, people have to start their education, their professional journey with their educational journey as a team. And we're not going to do that, but we're going to, going to put on top of it. Uh, the curricula for all these professions that you need in contemporary healthcare that didn't even used to exist when you and I were finishing residency, and I don't think the neither of us thinks of ourselves as being old, is there, right? right. So, <laughs> so, information technology, big data management, coordination of care, supply chain. Uh, you know, these are essential jobs in healthcare that are still being taught through apprenticeships. We believe that this is a part of the, of the educational offerings that we ought to have, not only for our organizations, but to offer them to others as well. So this is a kind of a, a little bit of a departure going into the ed- areas of education, but something that I believe that we need to do
0: differently. Well, Tommy, <laughs> the, um, it's been incredible to see the journey you've been on. And you're an incredible leader. I have to say, what happened in the work you did in Abu Dhabi and your commitment to it. Um, it was pretty transformative. I feel really lucky to have been a little tiny part of that conversation yeah, over time. And I am looking forward to getting to be part of that as well yeah. with, with the years to come. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.